everyone, and welcome to the History of Tammany Hall. Episode 9, A Certain Little Senator. Thanks for joining us once again. Last time we considered the ways that the French Revolution opened up new divisions within American politics, spurred on by the undiplomatic behavior of the French ambassador, Citizen Genet, American debates over events in Europe resulted in a new form of mass politics, which was embodied by the combative Democratic-Republican societies. This time, we'll take a look at how one ambitious young senator, our friend Aaron Burr, continued his ascent up the greasy pole of politics in the early Republic. On the one hand, he was well-positioned to thrive in this new environment. Compared to many of his contemporaries, Burr was quick to recognize and grab hold of the opportunities presented by the increasingly democratic tenor of American politics. In doing so, he helped pioneer new methods of campaigning. Yet, this period also saw Burr suffer dramatic political setbacks both on the national stage and back home in New York. He was, to an extent, ahead of his time. His energetic campaign style drew rebukes, and many colleagues, Federalist and Democratic-Republican alike, considered him too ambitious to be trusted. Faced with a series of humiliating defeats, Burr came to recognize that he would need a loyal organization to help further his political interests. Before we get into all that, let's check in on Burr's activities as a member of the U.S. Senate. While serving in Philadelphia, still the nation's capital at the time, uh, Burr built his reputation as one of the most prominent northern leaders of the anti-administration opposition. While Jefferson and Madison were southern agrarians, Burr represented the interest of cities above the Mason-Dixon line, particularly the urban middling sort within the Democratic-Republican Party. Though critical of Hamilton's economic plans, Burr did not share Jefferson's instinctive aversion to developing the economy through commerce and banking. Rather, in the words of modern biographer Nancy Eisenberg, Burr, quote, favored an independent economy, free from foreign, especially British, dependence, supporting commercial growth and Western expansion, end quote. In one of his first prominent actions as a senator, Burr led the Republican defense of Albert Gallatin, a like-minded figure within the party. Born into a noble family in Switzerland, Gallatin was drawn to democratic ideals as a young man, and he emigrated to the United States during the Revolution. Settling in Pennsylvania, he became an outspoken advocate of Republican causes, and he was elected to the Senate in 1793. Federalists, however, sought to unseat him, arguing that he had not been a citizen for the nine years required to serve in the Senate under the Constitution. Speaking with the Congressional Gallery full of onlookers, Burr decried this effort as motivated by a mixture of partisan self-interest and xenophobia. He outlined a robust conception of citizenship, which was based on responsible political engagement rather than birth or heritage. Despite Burr's best efforts, the Federalist majority on the relevant committee ensured that Gallatin was removed from office in a party-line vote. 
Gallatin bounced back just fine. He was soon elected to the House and ultimately served under both Jefferson and Madison as the longest-tenured Secretary of the Treasury in American history. Burr's profile rose further still when he took a hard line in opposing the controversial Jay Treaty. Relations between the U.S. and Britain were in a state of limbo in the decade after the Revolutionary War. The Americans particularly resented the British refusal to evacuate a series of forts along the Great Lakes. Land that had been ceded to the U.S. is part of the 1783 Treaty of Paris. Tensions escalated further with the start of Britain's war with France in 1793. The Royal Navy showed little respect for President Washington's neutrality proclamation. American ships bound for France and the French Caribbean were regularly boarded, their cargoes seized, and their crews impressed into service. In 1794, Washington tried to resolve these issues by sending Supreme Court Chief Justice John Jay as his emissary to London. Burr was opposed to Jay's involvement from the outset. He had no great love for Jay, one of the most prominent Federalists in New York State. Burr also questioned the constitutional propriety of the executive branch sending the head of the judicial branch on a political mission. While in England, Jay negotiated according to instructions written by Alexander Hamilton, and he reached an agreement with the British in November. Washington received a copy of the treaty the following March, but he was reluctant to share its contents beyond the cabinet before the Senate met to consider ratification in June. Even then, Vice President John Adams, acting in his capacity as President of the Senate, took the highly unusual step of requiring secrecy from the senators. The entire ratification debate would take place behind closed doors. The Washington administration's public reticence was, at least in part, due to a recognition that the treaty would be a tough sell. Jay had won some concessions at the negotiating table. The British agreed to abandon the western forts, and they granted the United States most favored nation status in international commerce. However, many of the other terms were far less favorable for U.S. interests. The treaty did not include recognition of America's neutral status, and there were no new protections for American vessels heading to France. American merchants were given limited access to the West Indies and Canadian waterways, while their British counterparts were given a free hand along the Mississippi. Other difficult issues, like the settlement of pre-revolutionary debts and compensation for goods seized by the Royal Navy, were put off for later arbitration. Plenty of historians have subsequently argued that Jay made the best out of a difficult situation. The U.S. delegation had little in the way of real leverage against the British. Beyond the individual provisions of the treaty, Jay succeeded in the larger aim of normalizing relations with Great Britain, and avoiding a potentially disastrous war against a far stronger opponent. By stabilizing trade with the largest economy in Europe, Jay's treaty laid the groundwork for a dec decade of prosperity and much-needed economic development. Contemporary public opinion, however, was not so kind. The Republicans and some unhappy Federalists condemned Jay's treaty as a humiliating capitulation to America's former colonial master. 
Jay and Hamilton were attacked as stooges of the British Empire and unrepentant monarchists. It was feared that the pro-British terms of the treaty would inspire an angry backlash from revolutionary France. In a cruel reminder of the limitations of Jeffersonian conceptions of liberty, many Southern Republicans were particularly upset by Jay's failure to win financial compensation for enslaved people who had been liberated by the British during the Revolutionary War. Once again, Burr made use of his legal and oratorical skills to spearhead Republican opposition in the Senate. In what Gallatin praised as, quote, a most excellent speech, Burr laid out his a point-by-point -point critique of the treaty's terms. He urged his fellow senators to postpone ratification until some of the most controversial sections could be renegotiated by new envoys. Burr's efforts were doomed to failure. The call for a renegotiation was hardly practical at this late stage. It was generally understood that Washington supported the agreement. The Federalists controlled a large majority in the Senate, and they were not prepared to let the centerpiece of the President's foreign policy collapse. By the end of June, the Senate dutifully ratified the Jay Treaty by a vote of 20 to 10. When it was finally made public, the Jay Treaty sparked a violent round of public protest. Jay and Hamilton were hung in effigy in cities across the country. Burr, however, saw his personal standing rise. The Tammany Society toasted Burr and his fellow opponents of ratification as, quote, the patriotic ten who would refuse to sacrifice their country's commerce, rights, and honor, end quote. Though Burr successfully built up his national reputation during his years in the Senate, he suffered a series of painful electoral setbacks in the years 1795 and 1796. The first of these took place in the midst of the debates over the Jay Treaty when George Clinton announced that he would not be seeking another term as governor of New York in 1795. Aging, in ill health, and still battered from his controversial win, the election of 1793, the old Hudson Valley populace decided it was time to take a breather from politics. New York State would have a new leader for the first time in 18 years. Ever ambitious, Burr and his political operatives uh, immediately put out feelers for his potential candidacy. Burr saw a path to victory by forging a coalition of Democratic-Republicans in New York City, moderate Clintonians in the Hudson Valley, and disaffected Federalists. Despite his increasingly partisan reputation in the Senate, Burr still presented himself as an independent who could cross party divides on the state level. As one uh, writer in the Albany Gazette stated that he supported Burr, quote, not because I know him to belong to either one faction or another, but because I believe him to belong to none, end quote. Burr and his supporters launched an energetic campaign to build support across New York. In the words of one opponent, quote, Mr. Burr's creatures are indefatigable through the whole state, end quote. Peter Van Gaspeek, though a committed Federalist, served as Burr's de facto campaign manager, and he called the candidate, quote, an upright man and as good a friend to the Constitution and good government as you or I, end quote. 
And a further sign of Burr's cross-partisan appeal, Stephen Van Rensselaer, a Federalist state senator and the scion of a major landowning family, expressed interest in running for lieutenant governor on a ticket with Burr. Meanwhile, a cohort of loyal supporters attempted to build support for Burr's candidacy among Democratic Republicans in New York City. Unlike the aristocratic Van Rensselaer, these men, like Marinus Willett, Melanchthon Smith, and John Lamb, tended to hail from humbler origins. They had been associated with the anti-federalist cause during the constitutional debates. In time, they would be known as Burr's Little Band. At the time, Burr's candidacy was considered remarkable for the amount of direct campaigning he engaged in. Burr traveled the state to meet with local dignitaries, collect information, and canvass voters. He even rented a house in Albany to serve as an upstate's base of operations. As we've noted in previous episodes, late 18th century notions of political decorum frowned on such open shows of ambition. Unsurprisingly, Burr's campaign style ruffled some feathers. One Federalist newspaper derided, quote, a certain little senator running about the streets, whispering soft things in people's ears and making large entertainments, end quote. In the end, though, Burr's efforts came to naught. Despite the outreach to the Federalists, Hamilton and his father-in-law, Philip Schuyler, were obstinately opposed to his candidacy. They swung the party behind John Jay, who was still off in England on his diplomatic mission. At the same time, Burr failed to capture the Republican nomination. Somewhat surprisingly, the nod went to Robert Yates, a moderate state court judge, would run as a Federalist candidate against Clinton back in 1789. At a caucus of leading Republicans, Burr won the support of just six of the 40 delegates. Despite his innovative campaign and rising profile on the national scene, Burr's position was far from secure in his home state. Jay comfortably defeated Yates in the general election of April of 1795. However, the result likely would have come out differently if the vote were held a few months later. The terms of the Jay Treaty had been made public in July, sparking a fierce round of public protest. Just days after his inauguration, New York's governor found himself burned in effigy on the streets of Manhattan. Undaunted by this failure in the gubernatorial race, Burr's attention soon shifted to the upcoming presidential election of 1796. With Washington's retirement imminent at the end of his second term, this was going to be the first truly competitive election in American history. In the summer and fall of 1795, Burr set off on a series of trips to build connections with like-minded figures across the country. In New England, Burr conferred with fellow opponents of the Jay Treaty. In Virginia, he met with both the sitting governor and a former U.S. senator. Most significantly, Burr spent a day with Thomas Jefferson at Monticello. There is no record of what they discussed on that visit, though Federalist commentators were, of course, quick to see signs of a conspiracy to rig the next election. 
1796 neared, it was clear that Adams and Jefferson were the favored candidates of the Federalist and Democratic Par Republican parties, respectively. Before the end of the Congressional session, James Madison convened a meeting of the Democratic-Republican Senate caucus to select Jefferson's running mate. This was a fractious affair. Some Southern congressmen, such as Senator Pierce Butler of South Carolina, believed that the party had to double down on its Southern base's support. These figures had little love for Burr. One observer believed him, quote, unsettled in his politics. Another thought he would break away from the Democratic Republicans and name himself, quote, the leader of a popular party in the northern states, which would, quote, subvert the influence of the southern states, end quote. Ultimately, however, the Democratic Republicans recognized that they could only succeed if they won in competitive states above the Mason-Dixon line, like New York and Pennsylvania. In the name of regional balance, the party leaders announced their support for a Jefferson-Burr ticket. As the campaign began, the Democratic-Republicans earned a major coup by carrying Pennsylvania. However, Adams and the Federalists proved themselves quite resilient. The vice president and his running mate, Thomas Pinckney of South Carolina, swept New England and carried the critical mid-Atlantic states of New York, New Jersey, Maryland, and Delaware. These results should have secured Adams a solid majority in the Electoral College. This, however, was not the end of the story. Party discipline was practically non-existent at this early stage. The Electoral College was a genuinely independent body. Individual electors were not bound by the wishes of party leaders, and they did not feel compelled to cast their votes for a prescribed ticket. The results were chaotic. In the end, some 13 individuals would receive at least one electoral vote in the election of 1796. I'd like to add a quick note about the Electoral College's voting system at this time. I promise this will be important both here and during the even more contentious election of 1800. Each elector cast two ballots for two separate candidates. There were not separate ballots for president and vice president. Instead, all of these votes were added up into a single tally. Assuming he got a majority, the candidate with the most votes would be elected president. The runner-up would become vice president. In this context, the meeting of the Electoral College was ripe for all sorts of external meddling. Even after all 16 states had picked their slates of electors, representatives of both parties tried their best to influence the election's final outcome. On the Federalist side, Hamilton hatched a plot against his own party's candidate. The former Secretary of the Treasury had never gotten along with the stubborn and independent-minded John Adams. Hamilton thus tried to convince Federalist electors to buck their nominee and switch their support to his running mate, Pinckney. Burr, for his part, hoped to sway Federalist electors to the Democratic-Republican side, and he embarked on a six-week journey across New England for this purpose. This activity spurred speculation that Burr was attempting to set himself up as a compromise candidate for electors 
wed little love for either Jefferson or Adams. Though there is no concrete evidence to support this view, one of Jefferson's close political operatives was convinced that Burr's efforts, quote, are more directed to himself than anybody else, end quote. The schemes of both Burr and Hamilton ultimately fizzled out. Federalist electors closed ranks behind Adams and carried him to the presidency. However, the growing suspicion between Burr and the Virginians had its effect, and the Democratic-Republican vote fractured. While most of the party's electors loyally backed Jefferson, Burr's support cratered, particularly in the South, where many figures never overcame their hostility towards the New Yorker. The results in Virginia are especially telling. Jefferson comfortably carried 20 of the state's 22 electoral votes. Burr, however, gained only a single electoral vote, matching the results of Jefferson's arch-rival Adams and George Washington, who had explicitly stated that he had no interest in serving for a third term. In favor of Burr, most of the state's electors favored safe non-candidates, like Samuel Adams of Massachusetts and George Clinton. In the final tally, Adams was victorious with 71 electoral votes, and Jefferson finished a close second with 68. He would become the nation's second vice president. Pinckney, despite Hamilton's best efforts, finished in third with 59 votes. Burr then came a distant fourth with only 30 electoral votes. Thus, more than half of Jefferson's electors had decided against backing his official running mate. For Burr, the result was a humiliation. He felt a deep sense of betrayal towards his own party. As he later recorded, he had, quote, no confidence in the Virginians, and they are not to be trusted. Federalist commentators were both surprised and amused by Burr's shoddy treatment from the Virginians. Hamilton gleefully noted, quote, the event will not a little mortify Burr. A more sympathetic New Englander commented that, quote, Virginia has treated Burr scurvily in the election, and North Carolina not much better. For Burr, the election of 1796 marked a double defeat. Adams' strong showing in New York meant that the Federalists took control of the state legislature. As we've seen, this body was tasked with naming the state's U.S. Senators. Burr would not be named to his second six-year term. When the legislature reconvened, Hamilton's father-in-law, Philip Schuyler, reclaimed his old seat. Burr was now out of a job. All right, I think that's enough for the time being. Let's leave poor old Aaron Burr at this temporary career low point. Next, team, next time, we'll see how he picked himself up and, with a little help, of a uh, society called Tammany, turned himself into an indispensable figure during the lead-up to one of the most consequential presidential elections in American history. In the meantime, uh, please follow the show on Twitter and Instagram, and feel free to shoot me an email at TammanyHallPodcast at gmail.com. Also, it would be really helpful if you could rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps get the show out there for a new audience. Anyhow, Thank you for listening.